Welcome to the Ink to Film Podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke. And I'm James. And this week we talk about Clive Barker's 1984 horror short story, Rawhead Rex. Now let's go dig up that suspicious boulder in the field where nothing grows. So this week we're covering Rawhead Rex. We had a conversation with Courtney where we got really into this uh, really graphic extreme story, and it was a lot of fun. And uh, but we wanted to go ahead and warn you that there is some extreme content coming up. We are discussing uh, extreme, explicit sexual violence, violence against children, gore, just general adult content. Just so you can be aware that that is what's coming up in this podcast. There's definitely a lot of it, so don't say we didn't warn you. <laughs> yeah, and if this is your first time listening to our show, um, what we do is we we take a book or a story, read it and discuss it, and then we move on and we watch the film adaptation, or sometimes TV show perhaps, and we talk about that in depth. And it's really just a deep dive into uh, what goes into making it kind of like uh, we, we try and pers- provide the perspective of I'm a writer and James is a filmmaker. And we try and bring that to our discussions. As well as we try to bring guests on that are writers and filmmakers as well, like Courtney, who yeah. we had this week. Yeah, we and we want to continue to do more of that in the future. So um, yeah, I had a lot of fun talking with her. I'm excited to share that discussion with you guys. Um, so stick around. All right, before we get started, we just wanted to take a second to talk to you about Audible. Audible has been nice enough to give us an affiliate link. It's audibletrial.com forward slash ink to film. And if you go ahead and use that, you can get 30 free days and one free credit for any audiobook in their collection. Yeah, and I thought it'd be appropriate this week to let you know that they have a ton of Clive Barker titles on there, including all the books of blood, uh, the Hellbound Heart, which did you know that was uh, what inspired Hellraiser? I knew Hellraiser was based on a book, but I did not realize it was called, what was it, The Hellbound Heart? The Hellbound Heart. Yeah, I actually haven't read it or seen it, but at some point we might cover it for this this show, so. Yeah, Hellraiser's super iconic. For Halloween time, maybe we'll end up back around on a character like that. But um, yeah, I know if you're a Clive Barker fan and you have never heard his stuff on an Audible version, this is now your chance to do it. Uh, Make sure you use that link. It's audibletrial.com forward slash ink to film. And that would be awesome. All right. We'd like to welcome our second guest ever. Courtney Hogan is a horror writer and filmmaker who went to school with me at Seton Hill University. Uh, She has a short story called Mantis out in the best body horror of 2017. Welcome to the show, Courtney. Hi, thanks. So you are going to be our resident uh, Clive Barker expert. (laughs) Are you prepared for your role? I am. Yes. I love Clive Barker. I, it's funny, I don't know that much about him, so I'm excited to get to know his material. Oh, yeah. He's an interesting guy, that's for sure. <laughs> All right, well, uh, I thought we'd first go around and share our experiences with his work and this story in particular. Would you like to start? Yeah, um, so 
this story, Rawhead Rex, is from Clive Barker's collection Books of Blood, um, the first volume, because there's two separate volumes. Uh, so I actually got this in high school. So I've had this book for a long time. I've had it for like almost 10 years. Um, and Rawhead Rex was my absolute favorite story out of the entire really? Yeah, out of the entire <laughs> thing. It's like that and Dread were two of my favorites. And Rawhead Rex was just like a little bit ahead. So, but Clive Barker has been like, you know, I guess like kind of like he's been a big deal for me since high school, definitely. But, you know, I remember being a kid and being like terrified of the Hellraiser VHS cover. So, been around. (laughs) (laughs) That's the only way that I know him. Yeah, it's just from Hellraiser. Oh, yeah, Hellraiser. Like, I like he's an iconic horror character. And then I had no idea that Clive Barker was behind him. Yeah, so high school, huh? That's that's pretty early to be. Re- this is some really extreme <laughs> material in here. I mean, this is this is real horror. <laughs> yeah, which is really like I think I started getting. I was into really like, uh, you know, because I was like a, a teenage like shithead. I was like really into like extremism. <laughs> so like uh-huh. I was really into extreme horror. So I, of course, I loved. Clive Barker like I've read like so many of his comics and I used to collect his art I have like some of his dolls from um the oh my gosh I think it's Tormented Souls series that he did so I like I have a bunch of Clive Barker stuff my dad actually got me into Clive Barker which is kind of weird when I was yeah in high school with Cabal so Nightbreed would be the movie cool cool uh what about you James have you ever read any Clive Barker? I've never read any Clive Barker. I've heard the name many times. I know that he's he's well known in the com- in the horror community, and uh, up until recently, I didn't know that he was even uh, like involved with Hellraiser, and that's really all I know of him. Um, but from all the stuff you guys are you've said so far, Courtney, and I'm sure I'm going to hear more. Uh, he seems like <laughs> a guy that I definitely would have around that high school time period. I would have definitely dived right into yeah. that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I think I would have loved this in high school, and just knowing how I was, you know, then too. <laughs> um, but I didn't, I didn't discover Clive in, yeah, until well, Clive, like I'm friends with him. Uh, <laughs> Old Clive, Mr. Until, Barker, please. <laughs> yeah, Mr. Barker. Um, I didn't discover him until I was at Seton Hill. I think we were we were taking oh, a wow. course on monsters, and and I read uh, Rawhead Rex for that course, and loved it. I think it's yeah. a fantastic story, and um, you know it. A fantastic monster story, and and uh, we can talk more about that when we dive into the into the short story itself. But um, yeah, okay, I think we're we're ready to talk about Clive Barker before we move on, right? All right. So I did some slap. You know, I'm going to go ahead and give my usual disclaimer and say that I am not a uh, scholar on uh, author bios. <laughs> I just do some slapdash research, usually on Wikipedia or whatever comes readily available on the internet, but. That being said, I found some interesting tidbits that I thought I'd talk about. So, uh, Barker became famous really with his books of blood, which came out in the 80s. Uh, He's born in Liverpool. He's a Brit. (laughs) When he was... Now, here's an interesting bit. When he was three years old, he witnessed a French skydiver named Leo Valentin plummet to his death during a performance at an air show in Liverpool. (laughs) And it says Barker would later allude to Valentine in many of his stories. Wow. 
So it's interesting. James, do you remember how we just heard about Maurice Sendak in yeah. our last project and how he saw the dead ba- uh, Limburg baby on, yeah. on the cover of a magazine? I was going to, as soon as you said, because I didn't know the story going into this, this episode. And as soon as you were started talking about him seeing a dead person when he was very young, I was like, that's exactly like Maurice Sendak. Yeah, and you wonder how much that affected him, you know. I mean, and that's pretty wild. Like, it, right. I, I assume he saw the man fall to his Die. death out of a plane. Yeah, yeah that's got to be wild. Yeah, that's really um, young. Yeah, three, and it's interesting that he even remembers that at three. It must be one of his right. earliest memories. Yeah, super traumatic, I guess. <laughs> well, obviously, <laughs> super traumatic. <laughs> wow. So uh, when Books of Blood first came out in the United States, uh, an author named Stephen King was quoted on the book covers. He said, I have seen the future of horror, and his name is Clive Barker. And that quote alone, I guarantee you sold a lot of books. Because <laughs> uh, Stephen yeah. King, even then, his name was just like, you know, people were going to buy it when they heard that. Oh, yeah. Well, in the 80s, you know, that's like prime Stephen King movie time right there. Yeah. So. That's, that's large praise coming from Stephen King. That's insane. Yeah. I can't believe that he was that, like... I mean, is he is is he now that he's been writing for like twenty years or however long? Clive Barker is he is he kind of known as that? Is he kind of the Stephen King of his oh own genre? Oh my god! Yeah, he's like a he's a big deal in horror. Definitely. Yeah, he's definitely a big deal. Yeah. Um. So, uh, the other thing about Barker is he. I mean, you alluded to having his art earlier, uh, Courtney. He is an artist. Um. He does a lot of illustrations for his own books. Um, he's also a filmmaker. He writes and directs and produces uh, films, often adaptations of his work, but sometimes not. Um, he's got a whole, you know, filmography that we could talk about maybe in the film episode next week. But really interesting that he's so it's a good he's a good target for an, an adaptation podcast because he does a lot of that. Speaking of, uh, actually, you know what? I'm going to save it for the end. But there is a tidbit about the uh, movie adaptation for Rawhead Rex mm-hmm. with Barker that I want to talk about at the end. So yeah, that really you know kickstarted his career. Um, an interesting tidbit about Rawhead Rex is that it's said to have a structure similar to Alien or The Thing from Another World, otherwise known as The Thing, which is another project we've covered. Um, so I thought that was interesting that I saw that specifically referenced, uh, James. I was absolutely going to bring that up. Like this, this story reminded me a lot of like early on within it, how Pennywise was seen, and then also the entirety of The Thing. It reminded me a lot of The Thing. Yeah, I mean, it's monster stories. There you go. This is another another classic. Um, all right, I, I think that's all I have for his biography. Oh, I, I should say he uh, he came out as openly gay in the 1990s, which, so bef- that would be after this. So um, it was something he kept, you know, uh, under wraps for a while, much like we, we, t- we heard about Marie Sendek was similar. And, you know, that's probably just a sign of different times. But uh, yeah, he's. I I think uh, his sexuality plays into a lot of his work. Uh, yeah, I don't know. What, what do you think, Courtney? Is that is that fair to say? Oh yeah, I think like definitely. I think the easiest, of course, is to look at like Hellraiser because Hellraiser is like this like allegory. You know, you could turn it into an allegory about you know being gay and like um, sexual kinks and like repressions and things like that. And especially in the eighties, you know, we're at the height of the AIDS epidemic. And you know, yeah, I think that definitely played a big role. Yeah, and this story itself, uh, we we can definitely talk about it. But there's a lot of masculinity versus femininity. There's a yes. lot of phallic symbols, and 
I wonder how much, like, maybe a kind of a suppressed or, a, you know, sexuality at the time, because he wasn't out yet, if that was somehow affecting his writing. I don't know. It's We're trying to play psychologist here a little bit, but, yeah, it's fun to do. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I guess we shall get into the story now if everybody's ready. Yeah. Let's do it. So what we like to do is kind of do like a rough summary of things that happen. And then we talk about each scene. So I'm going to start doing some summary stuff. And if either of you have something you want to say, let me know and I'll stop. Okay. So we open up with, uh, it's it's interesting. It's like kind of a historical look at the, um, the area known as Zeal, which is in Kent. Barker has an omniscient point of view that he uses throughout this story. And so it gives it a kind of folkloric quality in that it seems like a, a tale being told through the generations almost. He now then we quickly move on to more modern times where we find out about people coming in. They're called Sunday trippers, um, who are, I think are basically uh, on a road trip out of London and they start buying up land in this area and there's an implication that they're buying up land that maybe shouldn't remain untouched but they're populating it and so there starts to become some foreboding yeah he's hinting at things being underground and we come to thomas garrow who is digging up his three acre field using a tractor He, he he has gone to a spot where only nettles grow and there's this large stone there that's like in the middle of the field and it's been there for as long as he can remember, and uh, he decides it's, it's, it's time to dig it out, and uh, goes ahead and does that. Um, as he's digging it out, there's like a putrefying smell comes out of the earth, and he just keeps going and um, removes the stone. And uh, I had the I had the thought that it was very much like he was digging his own grave here. Uh, yeah, I also wanted to mention there's um, Barker fills his prose with like grotesque and disturbing images and just like sensory details that is so effective to me in establishing this the, the way this story is right definitely it early on the all of this going on like everything like you were saying everything that he's doing all of the digging all of the the things that he's doing he's like breaking his back to dig out this hole and he's and he's like everything's like grotesque and dirty and like i feel like that plays out throughout the rest of the novel and or i guess short story and i just was really struck by how how kind of it was all like very like gruesome and all he was doing was digging a hole yeah right yeah it's it's unsettling right like there, you get these details that are almost like barker loves to give you the detail that you're not supposed to get like that we're not supposed to talk about and he gives it to you every time um, and we get that here, like, you know, yeah. And I, I just wanted to read a little bit of prose here when we first meet Rawhead, essentially, and he's freed from this rock because this rock is covering our monster, Rawhead Rex, uh, underground. And, uh, you know, man's hubris, I think, is very much, you know, in front and center here. It's it's forgetting the past the lessons of the past and just plowing ahead and digging up this rock, even though he kind of knows he shouldn't. And when he does it, uh, this is this is the paragraph. I'm just going to read it because I think it's it's a wonderful passage. The stone that had pressed on him for so long had been removed, and he was dragging himself up easily now, sloughing off grave earth like a snake his skin. His torso was free, 
shoulders twice as broad as a man's, lean, scarred arms stronger than any human. His, lum his limbs were pumping with blood like a butterfly's wings, juicing with resurrection. His long, lethal fingers rhythmically clawed at the ground as they gained strength. Now, that's a taste of what I think is also amazing about Barker, is that his prose is really genuinely beautiful in like a scary, disgusting way. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm glad you brought, brought that section up because I love the, um, you know, like a snake leaving its skin thing. I was like, oh, yeah. that's so pretty and awful. It's so cool. So awful. <laughs> Yeah, he he really like it's the it's the grotesque and the and the sublime and he blends those two right. really masterfully. And it's really interesting because there are going to be especially like sections later where he um the gore is like extreme like mm -hmm. and it's super disgusting like disgusting stuff is happening all throughout. But like um like on that same page when he um when he scalps Thomas, it's just like and then a scalp tour and like that's yeah. it, and it's hmm. I don't know, really neat that he just doesn't he doesn't indulge a lot. He pick he he like he picks his shots right. Like he he yeah. takes his moments where he where it's gonna work, and he does the same. Speaking of that, just it's more writerly writerly <laughs> things, but um, with pacing that he does amazingly is he'll he'll do certain things really fast. Like um, there's a point later on where they decide to go on a trip. And it's like the decision to being in the car to being on the road is like two sentences. Yes. And then there's a moment where they stop and there's there's tension and he builds tension by describing everything about the scene down to the weather and the way the water droplets are and all this stuff. So he really knows when to slow down and when to speed up. And that's masterful to me. And it's amazing. that This is one of his early books. Yeah. That he was already this good. Yeah. <laughs> It's it's an old trope. It's it's much like the thing, right, James? Um, he's there. They dig up the past here. Maybe something you should have left buried. Yeah, it just seemed like if there was this creature that was buried under a rock, you would you would keep more than just like a couple legends of it, right? You'd be like, guys, this is a very serious <laughs> situation. Do not dig this rock up because we buried a monster <laughs> under it, and it's probably still alive. But yeah, right. I mean, it, it's, it's well, there was like a there was a carving on the altar or something, right? Right, but you gotta have yeah, more than that, right? But yeah, yeah, that's not enough. <laughs> that's not enough. <laughs> Especially you think about like I don't know. Yeah, if they're just legend, you know, eventually somebody's gonna move it. Like, yeah, definitely. <laughs> if it's not like you're not taking it seriously, nobody else is gonna take it seriously. Yeah, I loved when the rock was moved. That he was like sprayed by this like yellow mist, and he couldn't escape it, and like. I just like the idea of like something coming out of the ground that's like basically just pure the unknown. Like you don't know what that is that's hitting you. And he's like right. is talking about how he can't leave behind his his uh what was it, like a rake or a hoe or something? Um yeah. his shovel, yeah. His shovel. So he's saying like he can't leave it behind and, and then we get this like sort of implication that maybe this creature has like glamoring abilities where it like kind of yeah. tricks yes. you into staying mm -hmm. behind. Yeah, that's def yeah, that's definitely hinted at. Yeah, because it hits it again at the end. Yeah, uh, yeah, with the, in, in in the church. Um, mm -hmm. But it's also, I think, there's also an implication of fear, right? Like he's just so terrified that his own body is like paralyzing him or making him do something that's irrational. Yeah, and like once again, like the detail, like um, he's getting scalped and everything, and he's not screaming or anything. He's just like, "Oh, I'm gonna die," which you know. I guess what happened. Yeah, 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, he's just he's like stunned, right? Yeah. Um, there's also I I think it's interesting how to me it felt like Rawhead rips the POV away from the farmer. Like we're in huh. his POV until all of a sudden when he's freed. Rawhead just steals it, and it becomes Rawhead's POV. I love that, yeah. Um, and I think it, yeah. It, it's amazing how Barker does that, because I find that really difficult to do. And he d- seems to do it just naturally, and it's it's. I think it's really handled well throughout this story. But yeah. I agree. Okay, we can move on. So yes, <laughs> Rawhead kills, kills the farmer and escapes his prison. Uh, James, since this is your very first time meeting Rawhead Rex, now I guess you get more of a description of him coming up here. Like, what was your initial thoughts about this monster? So I had, uh, so in my mind, I had this whole like werewolf thing going on where I was like, oh, he's just like a big werewolf. And like he, uh, like ish creature, like large, powerful, kind of, kind of like humanoid where it's like, it could also be a man. And they kind of talk about it throughout, kind of getting ahead of myself, but they talk about how it's like a hybrid and I wanted to ask you guys if you felt like it was a high, like if it was supposed to be at some point it was a human. And yeah, I mean, I, we can talk about it now. I, I there is an implication later that maybe the, they are made through some sort of human mating thing. Um, but I, I was unclear whether or not the Rawheads children are all, like other Rawheads or if there's something else. I don't know. I was just going to say, I think it's funny that you thought he was a werewolf type person because. I very vividly remembered him, um, you know, from reading this, like, forever ago in high school, um, looking like Pumpkinhead, like, looking like a really weird, like, humanoid, like, really just, like, I don't know, disturbing kind of, like, skinned thing. And then I read the description, and I was like, I have no idea why I thought that he looked like that, because he doesn't look like that at all. And something that I didn't realize until, like, much later was was what you guys, what you guys were talking about um, with, like, the the phallic symbols and the the i didn't even catch on to that until much later in the story that he that he's kind of this like phallic creature and then there's also all of this like kind of sexual i don't know nods to certain types of things that could potentially be going on as far as like repressed feelings or that kind of thing and like dangerous like hyper masculinity mm-hmm. yes i mean he's essentially a giant dick that eats yes. people <laughs> <laughs> right, and I didn't even get that till much later in the story. Like, I, I on your guys' first read, did you did you pick up on any of that stuff? Because I know you said you read it in high school. I think somewhere in the middle, I did. But go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, um, in high school, probably definitely not. When I read it again in like um, when we were at Seton Hill, when I read it again, and uh, you know, definitely had the knowledge. Was like way more into Hellraiser. Definitely had like all this Clive Barker knowledge. I was like, oh my god. everywhere (laughs) (laughs) next up we get gwen nicholson who is fighting to get a pony in a barn and we we've we've heard something about rawhead going to a barn so we think maybe there's something going on here um and i thought it was funny because she keeps like calling the pony stupid right and forcing it in and of course we we and (laughs) know that the pony's reacting to rawhead so of course in this moment the pony is actually being very smart um and this is another point where i think there's a a, definitely a theme about like human arrogance and and that kind of thing and that being kind of the downfall of these characters especially you know that ends up being kind of her downfall right 
Um, so she gets it in and then Rawhead eats the pony, <laughs> um, but it won't attack her because she is on her cycle or however uh, Rawhead says it, you know, yeah. she's got the vile blood on her or something, <laughs> which um, I thought was going to be like, so as soon as that was brought up and I didn't know about Clive Barker's sexuality going into this, I thought that that was going to be some sort of like problematic, like patriarchal view of like periods or something like I, I, I didn't really know what to make of it at first. And I just like I was like, oh, here we go. Oh, yeah. I mean, it is. But he's also I think he's trying to say something about it. Right. Gordon? Right. Invert. Like, yeah, I would definitely say that it's an inversion. It's like something that's, you know, meant to save them. And I think it's. I don't know. She's kind of the best character, one of the best characters in the book. So I will in Gwen? the story. Yeah, like her, like okay. trying to save her kid. I thought it was, you know, really good. But um, I don't know. Yeah, I definitely. I guess I, I've heard people say that they thought it was misogynistic, but I guess I didn't take that that way. But it's also he's like he, like Rawhead says, the blood is taboo, and he wouldn't touch a woman that was poisoned by its presence which is like yeah that yeah. does sound really misogynistic. I felt like it I felt like he was pushing into that and then as the story progressed oh, I felt yeah. like he he kind of was like it was all for the sake of him uh making this point that he was trying to make with right right because like I said I consider it's all about yeah like this like toxic like oh I'm super yeah. masculine so of course that's going to be really evil when it's like you know, preparing the body for like, you know, you didn't have a kid, so you're shedding all that stuff. So. Yeah, I mean, and Rawhead's he's a force of not only masculinity taken to the extreme, but also death and putrefaction and rot and everything. Right, and, and that's like the life opposite of that and, being yeah. life and birth. And and so he's setting up that dynamic one. But then also like Rawhead is a monster. He is the villain. So I always think it's kind of a mistake just because a right. villain does something terrible to be like, the author must believe that. Right. You know, Absolutely. no, he's setting him up to be hated. Right. Right. Because you don't, you're not like, ew, period. You're like, oh my God, this poor lady is about to get murdered. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's also gross, right? Like the, the idea that he's like smelling her and like, right. I don't know, like he's so invasive and. Right. There's just something so unsettling about that, like a creature, because he's smarter than, like, he's constantly smarter than you think he's going to be, but it's interesting how he, he he's not, like, super intelligent, but he's right. got this cunning to him, too, that is consistently surprising. It's not just a mindless creature. Which right. I didn't expect to get that POV. I didn't expect to get Rawhead. I thought he was just going to be a mindless creature. I thought he was just going to be a force of nature. And then come to find out he right. can manipulate, he knows about fire and he knows what, like he can problem solve and he's got all, I don't know. So you alluded to it. Um, well, okay, actually it doesn't happen here. First we get a brief moment where we're introduced to Rob Milton and his wife Maggie, who become very important later. Um, they talk about their children, Debbie and Ian, important later. Um, and there's a negotiation between the two of them in, w in which they agree to go to the Harvest Festival. Then we jump back, and we're back to uh, the Nicholsons, and the child is, is, is terrified. The husband, Denny, comes down, sees somebody in the barn, grabs his rifle, goes out to confront it. It's Rawhead Rex. <laughs> Doesn't go well. <laughs> he gets like, Rod consistently like picks people up and turns them upside down and then does things to them. Um, which is just interesting to me. Does that to him here. I think he throws him in the air, actually. Mm -hmm. Yes. Just, like, tosses him. Yeah. <laughs> 
killing him and then like grinding his face into the ground. And then, yeah, there's this really just thrilling, terrifying chase with, um, with Gwen t- trying to save her child and taking her child upstairs into the bedroom. And then there's this awesome moment where she thinks she like, convinces herself that it's all has to be a dream. And she's like sitting there and is like just convinced herself that it was all this terrible nightmare. And then Rawhead's at the window and this just like, I don't know, just the idea of like, the monster at the window and you can't get away from it. And then, um, yeah, Rawhead steals the child eats the child and she falls and breaks her neck on the stairs. And this is the moment where I think for me, this story becomes something unique because this character in almost every other story you'll ever read, this character doesn't die. Right. She's the or hero. Not this way. Yeah, exactly. She, she the hero. I did think it was kind of a cop out that she, uh, magically broke her neck on the staircase, <laughs> but I'll let it slide because I like climb right here. But every time I read that, I'm like, Ugh. the child dying is Dude, is the yeah. more un like that never happens. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I can't even imagine in the '80s people were probably like, oh my god, don't read that book. Hmm. Yeah, and it immediately sets up that um, it sets up. Like, I love stories that do this, but it sets up a world where anything bad can happen to any character. Doesn't matter if they're a tiny child. Doesn't <laughs> matter if they're super likable. If right. they've never done anything wrong to anybody. They can die horribly. Right. Kids and are getting so taken that, out in this story. <laughs> oh, yeah. And that's terrifying. Yeah. Like, that 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 unsettles you. And I'll just go ahead and talk about it now. That's one of the things I want to talk about with the story. It, to me, it's... I When I grew up, I loved reading horror, and I loved reading monster stories, and I loved reading ghost stories and things like that. And it was a lot of, like, geared more towards children, kind of, like scary stories to tell in the dark, yeah. those famous drawings. Oh, God. That kind of stuff I loved. Um, but this reminds me of that, but like an adult version of it, where you can get that thrill of being terrified of a monster, even if you read this as a 30-year-old man, <laughs> you know, instead of a kid, like, because it's so hard now to scare me or to unsettle me even. But this this story does it to me. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, I feel like a lot of stories like set up this situation where, like you're saying, those those stories that are kind of geared towards like a younger crowd they're kind of they set up like rules within the story like or or like tropes within a story where it's like the kid's not gonna die the people the good people will eventually prevail um all of those things and like to that's i i think that to have written this in the 80s was him being like subverting all of that and being like everybody's i mean i I, stephen king kind of did the same thing with it where he killed georgie like right away right away like it's like when kids die it's like the author saying like just re- be ready for fucking everything to go down because it's yeah gonna be crazy. everybody's up for grabs yeah all right uh so uh let's move on from that okay so next we meet coot and declan over at the church and they become important characters each in their own way um there's talk about it's coot who's the reverend and um he's telling declan about how there was an electric feeling while he was by the altar and that he was uh made erect by an energy <laughs> and, and this is more just you know explicit you know details you didn't want to even hear but barker gives them to you you know so he's talking about that and then declan says that he he kind of understands and he's been feeling something similar too but his is more um foreboding as he grins and says that he knows about a creature that was once called rawhead and that it ate children uh so next we get mike glossop who finds the carnage at the Nicholson farm. And soon Zeal has heard about this 
everybody assumes it's like a serial killer, maybe who like a demented uh, sexual predator or you know pedophile who's come and killed this child and and killed everybody else. And uh, they're the cops are all gathering at a bar called the Tall Man, which I I, I love is kind of a I don't know it's a it's an interesting detail that says like maybe there is like a that could be something that where they wanted the town to remember, but it's now been forgotten why it's called that. Because I got the idea that it's called the Tall Man because of Rawhead Rex. Oh right? yeah, absolutely. I think they say something about it later. That one of the one of the guys kind of thinks of uh, the Tall Man, and he's like, "Oh, I get it now," because like he's seen Rawhead at that yeah. point. And there's yeah. so much like weird so, old timey stuff going on anyway. Like they're talking about going to like the Harvest Festival, and it's like mm, that's kind of weird. <laughs> like that's yeah. really lottery ish. Yeah, I was having a difficult time like placing this movie in the context of a time period. Like, at first, I was like, this is, like, an old-timey story. Story? Yeah. Yeah. What, what did I say? Movie? movie. You said movie. Yeah. That's all right. I'm in the... You know my, my brain. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They... I was having a hard time placing it. I was like, this is, like, really old. This is, like, olden days. And then they're, like, talking on the phone, and I'm like, okay, so it's not, and there's cars, and so it's in this time period. But then yeah. the religious figures in the town still kind of act like old-time religious, like... Yeah. Pr- priest or whatever they were supposed to be definitely it's like really weird like it's like it could take place anytime but it's definitely in the backwoods is what i got from it like it's kind of it's far away from society maybe it's Mm -hmm. not totally up to date yeah i agree with that yeah well we do get um gissing gets in his car and he's and he's he's riding away and rawhead rex we immediately switch to his pov he's watching this happen Mm -hmm. and he decides that he, he and I love this detail because it's funny, but also just perfect. Like he thinks that humans have mastered these beasts yes. and commanded them to do their to do their bidding. <laughs> and he's like, "Well, I'll have to fight one on one of these days. I better try it out now." <laughs> yeah, that was this such a, a good detail. touch. Yeah, because it was like, "Oh, that's right. He doesn't know what's going on. He has been under there for so long." Yeah, I mean, I love any time that that we're in Rawhead's POV because one, I didn't expect to ever get any of that. But like you say, he's he's he was more of a character than I expected him. To, I guess I already said that, but he's more of a character than I ever yeah. expected him to be. And then and then to have him have these funny things that happen and kind of his thought yeah. process, you can see it all happening. Right. And I yeah. think it's funny that he's allowed to be the comic relief as well as like you know uh, this crazy mutilator. Like yeah. <laughs> that part is really funny that he thinks that they are like the cars are yeah. monsters. <laughs> And Barker's capable of that. Like he he has stories that are just humorous in the in the books of blood. Um, right. What's that? A nattering nattering and Jack. Yes. Oh, that one's so yeah. funny. Yeah. Yeah, it's really funny. Like so so he is capable of doing that, and and so it's interesting that he does it a little bit here. And yeah, I agree. It doesn't it doesn't take away from it at all. In fact, it's kind of a nice like little bit of like a release valve on the pressure, just a little bit. Before we get right back into it, yeah. right. because uh, yeah, Rawhead... oh, wait, snatch up another kid. <laughs> oh no, that's yeah. a that's a few pages away. <laughs> yeah, not yet. Right now, he, uh, he he yeah. First off, we get a really disturbing discussion about the dreams that Gissing is having. They're like pedophilic in nature, yes. and this is another like I said, like Barker is giving us details we don't want we're like no no no, don't tell us that but he's like nope i'm telling you <laughs> yeah. um he doesn't he, he won't let you look away right and so rawhead comes out and the cop driving the car uh gets thrown through the windshield because he like swerves to avoid him and then uh he pulls gissing out and gelds him 
which is just a, such a surprising, brutal thing to do. And uh, and then it actually doesn't kill him. He only dies when the, the petrol catches on fire, the gasoline for us Americans. And uh, it burns him up. And that's when Rawhead says that he's learned a valuable lesson, which uh, James alluded to earlier. I did not expect him to, because he'd lifted people up like that before upside down. And I thought he was, it had something to do with them like passing out after being held upside down or something. And then he totally just like brutally ripped that guy apart. Um, (laughs) Something else I wanted to note it that I wanted to note here was um, I find it really interesting the way Clive Barker is able to just like flow from one POV into another and then like as one character dies we flow into another who will die and then another who will die and we just like are working through <laughs> the town of people and i just thought like and i there were times right. i know you said there were times that like a couple sentences would lead somebody like you know from one destination to another doing something and there there were a couple times where i was like oh wow now we i need to like re readjust and realize that i'm in this person's pov and we're we're doing this now were you ever um like off put or confused by it or was it more just an interesting different? Like, I mean, because it's different than the other stuff we've there read. Was, I mean, I, I don't know that I was confused, but there were times that I had to go back and be like, okay, let me let me make sure I know exactly who's who's POV we're in and what they're doing right now. Yeah, that's interesting. I think it's. I mean, that's the cautionary thing with omniscient POV that we always talk about as writers is you can confuse people, and so even when it's done well, which I think it is here, it can be confusing at times. Um, oh, so I also wanted to say with the gelding, it's another, uh, that's another hyper-masculine thing, right? Like, he has to be, he is not only a giant monstrous dick running around eating people, he has to be the biggest dick, right? Like, he has to <laughs> right. literally emasculate his foes, right? Right. So, yeah, it's just more of his, like, hyper-maleness uh, coming through, um, which doesn't say very nice things about being male, you know, to be honest. So, it's it's... It's interesting because if you wanted to take it that way, you could see this sto- story as a like a real kind of tearing down of masculinity and, and you know, toxic masculinity, uh, you know, I think at, is what really is being taken aim at. But really, all masculinity is kind of laid bare here as being kind of bad. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, you also think, um, yeah, talking about Clive Barker earlier, he's gay and he's not out and... You know, you have yeah. to be, like, macho, and you can't, like, show emotion. And, like, yep. I think, like, especially looking at it through that lens, yeah, it's, like, just this brutal takedown of, like, what a man's supposed to be and, like, how damaging that is to literally everybody. Yeah. I didn't mention it in the bio section, but I read something about him being, him claiming to be Christian at one point yes. and then, like, backpedaling and on then it later. No. And so it's interesting because it seems to me that maybe he was raised Christian and it was something that was he at least dealt with. And if you take that and you take the idea of things that go against it and are vile and, you know, desecrations and stuff and homosexuality being bound up in that and maybe like his own complicated feelings about that side of him. Right. If you look at it through that lens, um, I don't know. Yeah. You can see some of that in the story. I Definitely. Think. Because, um, yeah, I know what you're talking about exactly. But there's also, like, thinking about it from a religious perspective, you know, like, women not treated the best, especially women on their period. That's a big thing. And, you know, those yeah. old books is, you know, you don't you don't associate with women, like, during that time and things like mm-hmm. that. And how, um, you know, femininity is, it's weaker and 
that's of course inverted at the end. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, you know, because ultimately, it's almost like it's it's gotten that reputation of being weaker because it's actually more powerful. Right, and that's like you know an attempt to downplay something that is actually a genuine force and, and the only force that seems to have any effect on Rawhead. Right. Of course, the only force that would uh, tame a dick. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, so Coot comes out and uh, this is an amazing scene <laughs> he comes out and he sees Declan who's with Rawhead Rex in the churchyard this by the way is was like I know this was supposed to be a disturbing scene but like funniest thing <laughs> ever to me I think it's I think it can be disturbing and funny. it is both yeah. I think it, it is, is both I think it's disturbing because it's just like what why yeah yeah, so he's just like torn his clothes, and he's like in front of Rawhead, just like pee on me, <laughs> uh, and Rawhead just pees all over him, and he like opens his mouth, and he's drinking it, and it's super disgusting, um, and he's being defiled in every way, and Coot's just watching it like from like hiding, and um, you know this is another p- point where like Coot probably gets away, but like in this story, no, he gets heard. Rawhead comes after him. Um, he, he gets into the, he gets into the church and, uh, he slams the door and he has this thing where he has to like hit his arm with a stick and he, uh, he find which makes, uh, Rawhead howl so loudly that it's heard throughout the entire town. And, uh, he calls down to the station for some cops to come, uh, to come save him. He hopes. He so hopes. yeah, wild scene. Crazy scene. So <laughs> yeah. I know we were just talking about the religion but I wanted to know what you guys made of Five Barker um, having this religious figure have such a 180 turn and be like so in service of Rawhead. Like what what was he trying to say? Was it just like um, kind of like a realization or I, what do you think Clive Barker was trying to say with him having that flip? I have an idea. Do you want to go ahead, Courtney? Um, I think when I read it, I kind of just saw it as like, weakness like the you know like he's just willing to follow whatever you know whatever is powerful and for the time like rawhead's there and like you know like he's willing to give his entire self over to that to survive (laughs) yeah and so playing off of that i think um that he's he paints these men especially declan as being people who are subservient to a higher power and I think he's pointing out that someone who is able to devote their life to something like that, if you can turn them, are going to be the biggest supporters of this other force. Oh, yeah. And so this man who's primed, he's made his life around like basically submitting himself to a, a, like a greater power. Now that he's confronted with Rawhead and throws in with him, he becomes this like lunatic zealot. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think there's something there. And I-, I think he is kind of poking poking at organized religion a little bit, too, for sure. Oh, definitely. Like, the idea that it's easy to flip and that, like, what are you really following? And, you know, how are you? How are you going to know that what you're following isn't, you know, something like this? Especially when you think about, like, organized religion, especially, like, um, Judeo-Christian religion. And it's like, you know, the Old Testament's super fucked up. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. And I mean, there's a moment too where Rawhead says something about, I don't know if it's here a little bit later, but he says something about the virgin shepherd yeah. is who they worship now. And he basically just blows it off like he has no power right. and he, he's super dismissive of it. 
And I, I, it's interesting. I think if you're if you're a heavily Christian person who reads this story, you're probably going to be pretty offended. But yeah, I mean, I think it's he's also a little bit fair because you could argue that Coot is one of the most um, likable, redeemable characters in the in the in the book or in the story, and he is also uh, a man of the cloth. So right. you get both sides of it. So we hop back to Ron Milton, who is at the hotel with, uh, and and uh, he's here. He's hearing the house, um, but then it's weird because we, we get just a little snippet of Ron, but then we're right back at the church, um, and that was almost that was actually probably the most disorienting thing for me because that didn't just change POVs; it changed like locations yes. in the course of a couple sentences. Like we were in town, and then we were back at the church. Yeah, that's what uh, I mean. Like, odd, that's but... I, there were a couple times where I was like, okay, I gotta back up. I gotta figure out what where we're at. Like this one sp- yeah. was this, was one specifically where I went back and was like, what the hell happened? Yeah, I, yeah. I almost would argue that this one maybe wasn't handled as well as some of the other ones. Yeah, I'd agree. So we get some memories from Rawhead where he's thinking about how fire got the better of him in combination with an unnamed thing that he remembers them using against him, which we later learn is the the icon that is in the altar. He thinks about how he used to take women and impregnate them, and then they would die when they had his monstrous monstrous children. Um, so that's disturbing. And then, uh, and then he caps that off by masturbating in the church. And uh, yeah, this is also, this is the moment I was talking about where he's unworried by this virgin shepherd. Yeah. So this is a real just like fuck you to the Christian church and, and <laughs> saying it has no power over him, right? Right, absolutely. Yeah, that was a wild scene and too. And also just shocking. It's very shocking. <laughs> There's so much in this in this that's just like I did not expect in any way. Like I was like coming in, I yeah. was like this is going to be like a werewolf story and then it's not a werewolf story. It's a dick <laughs> coming all over everything in the story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's funny like I think it's shocking because it's so full tilt. Like, it's just like, yeah. fuck it, just go with it. Like, have him, yeah, have him come all over the church. And it's like, oh yeah. my God. Like, you did not have to, like, hit it a little on the nose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And and what's amazing is that he tops, like, he keeps topping himself, too. Barker, I, I mean, like, you're reading this story wondering what the next thing is going to be. Because we just saw him, that guy get covered in piss, and then this happens, and it's. It's just wild. I don't know. Right. Like, it's amazing how he can one up himself. Um, but it's all. Yeah, I don't know. It's all almost like he's also ramping us up for it, so that we're prepared for the more extreme things too. Yeah. I don't know. It's it's really masterfully done. Oh, so we get Coot, and we find out that Coot has hidden in a crypt to to uh, to escape Rawhead, and he hears the cops arrive, and he's getting ready to come out, and like Declan just like comes out of the shadows and bear hugs him. And it's like dragging him upstairs and Declan's acting just like really insane now. And he's still smells really bad. And he's like, it's just like, is the picturing Declan was just madness too at that point, which was really fun. Um, And we, we just hate him. And we know that he's just this like complete convert and he's, he's going to sell him out and he's tries to like kind of reason with him, but we just know it's not going to happen. And then sure enough, Rawhead comes in uh, plain view into the church he just like grabs Coot and then we, we switch to the cops outside and we, we meet Sergeant Ivanhoe who's in command and uh, some of them have guns, some of them don't, we realize. And he comes up and Rawhead comes out with Coot's body and his hand, like just held up and the cops like, have, like are just like frozen for a moment and then he throws the body and it lands in front of the cops. 
And I was 100% convinced that Coot was dead at this moment, right? Mm-hmm. And this, I, I even wrote down like, oh my God, another character that never dies in a story has just died. Like the, he was the hero. He doesn't right. die here. Yeah, I thought he was making it to the end. Like I thought he was the one to fight off Rawhead potentially. Yeah. And it's interesting because he ends up not being dead, but only for a little while. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, um, so Rawhead gets stung by the bullets here. And it's interesting because like he's not invulnerable. Like He can take damage and he reacts to it. Um, but he's just so like, I don't know, like his, he's so got so much malice and potential for violence that it feels like he's the unstoppable force, even though he really isn't. Right. Which is cool, because like I, I, when you introduce weaknesses to a monster like this, I, I feel like you're you can set it up to be make him less scary. But I never felt that way, really. Yeah. Mm hmm. So yeah, then Coots revealed to still be alive, although just in terrible condition and very near death. Um, and then we swap. Here we go. We're, we're, we get Ron and Maggie, and this is my favorite section of the, the entire story. It's the climax, really. I guess you could say, or well, not really. It's it's kind of. <laughs> it's one of the climax. <laughs> one of them, yeah. There's a lot um, of those. Oh, nice, nice Boom. pun there. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so Ron and his wife Maggie decide to take their kids on a drive, which like, okay, you could maybe say that this is a little bit like, really, is this really what they would do in this <laughs> current situation? <laughs> like, yeah, let's just go for a drive and clear our heads. Uh, but maybe, I mean, the implication is they don't yet maybe believe that this is an actual monster and they think it's a person. And if, and if you take that into account, maybe they'll be less careful. Right. Um, and so they're out driving and Barker slows down and describes the serene day, beautiful day in the countryside. His daughter needs to pee. So they pull over and he tells her to go behind a hedge. And I love this because it's Barker setting us up to be just like so much tension. Like we are like, oh my God, she's going to get taken. Like, and we've seen Rawhead do the, the very thing we don't think he's going to do. He, he continues to do it. So we think like, oh, he's going to take her and. I am second guessing myself because I feel like, no, the child will be okay. But then I'm remembering what story I'm reading. So now I'm convinced this child's going to die. And I don't know about you. Is that, did you have that uh, read of it, James? Definitely. Yeah. I was like this. I was, I was like, the dad's going to get killed while the little girl's using the restroom and and then she's going to get dragged away and the mom and the the son are going to be none the wiser. Okay. Uh, Do you remember, do you remember your first time reading this part, Courtney? Oh my god. No. I do not at all. But I think What about what about Yeah. <laughs> I guess I would imagine it um kind of like what um James just said about you know the dad gets killed, the girl gets taken, but it would be, you know, the mother heroically coming to the rescue of the child and you know she's defeating that masculinity with femininity and yeah, yeah, that doesn't happen either. <laughs> Honestly, now that you say that, I kind of wish that the mo- that the mother in this case was the one who carried on what the father does here. How cool would that have been? Yeah, yeah, I, c- yeah, I kind of yeah. agree with that. Yeah, that would be. I-, I agree. I think that would have been maybe the better play, but right, because no matter how much you want to write a story about how bad masculinity is, you have to have a man save the day. <laughs> well, it's way. the '80s, so yes. <laughs> Society isn't ready yet, I guess. I don't <laughs> yeah, know. they were like, oh, you're gay. We can only handle so much, sir. <laughs> Calm down. Yeah, I agree. Because, yeah, the, I mean, the wife really doesn't do anything after this, um, which is, uh, yeah, it's unfortunate. But what is brilliant about this scene is that he continues to just, like, you know, he draws the scene out and out and out. And then we get the false thing where she screams, 
and everyone runs over. And I was so convinced she is screaming because she sees Rawhead, right? Because that's basically what happened with um, Amelia earlier. And they all run around, and I was so, like, it was like, I fell for this fake so hard. And then even him looking back at his son, it didn't occur to me. And then, sure enough, what happens is Rawhead shows up at the car, and his son has just been sitting there quietly reading his comic book, and snatches him out of the car, and, like, bites the top of his head off. (laughs) And then we get that... I'm going to start calling this a Clive Barker detail because there's a detail that comes here that like other writers don't give you and you don't want, but he gives it to you anyway. He says that the son throws up. He is sick down Rawhead's throat as he's eating him. Uh-huh. Yeah. Beautiful. Oh my goodness. Like that's, that's the Bar- Clive Barker detail right there. That's the one that no one else gives you, but he's going to give it to you. Cause I have that page open and I was like, Oh, you know, what's the most beautiful thing ever. He's eating this kid's head. And it says the breeze carried motes of Ian's blood back down the road towards Ron. He felt them spot his face in a gentle shower. It's yeah. Like, right? So like, nice. Uh-huh. <laughs> He, I mean, it's the it's the mix of the sublime and the horrific, right? Right. He, he blends those two so well in the story. Absolutely. Um, That's a big. Clive and so yeah, Barker this is this, this 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 is a scene I will never forget. Like this is something that there's a couple in this story that will always stay with me, but this one in particular, I think, is something that is going to stick with me forever. So yeah, the last bit of story we get here really is Declan is on his like. He's kind of on a vengeance kick, right? He's got to, like, get this monster and kill it. And he decides to go talk to Coot, who he learns is still alive, and find out how to fight this devil. Coot tells him to go to the church. He goes to the church. Right before he gets to the church, actually, here's another scene that I'll never forget. We get a just, like, paragraph. And it's a description of Rawhead just, like, resting on a field and just casually dining on the corpse of this boy. And he's like, it's like a described like soup and like a plate. And he's just like plucking out choice morsels. And that scene is something I'll never forget, too, because it's how like surprising and short and just like perfect, but awful. Like, I don't know. How, <laughs> I, how do I describe that scene? I don't know. Yeah, remember. the perfect like, oh, my gosh. If you you guys got to if you don't read Clive Barker, you got to read Clive Barker because like that's him all the time. <laughs> it's just like, is it? oh, that was really weird and disgusting and not necessary but very necessary <laughs> because it's a scene it's a scene you don't get normally yeah, yeah. after this i i definitely will read more clive barker i mean i i think we probably we have it in our plans to eventually do uh heart of darkness right or not heart of darkness what was it uh hellbound, hellbound heart. heart of oh darkness is Hell, hell, yeah, Heart of Darkness would be if we would do Apocalypse <laughs> Now. now. Exactly. Yeah, Apocalypse Which we might now. do that one, too. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. I love that movie. <laughs> I meant Hellraiser. So, I also like Apocalypse Now. <laughs> I, yeah, I agree. I like both. <laughs> so Declan is at the church. He's searching for, like, a hum he can hear. Ron shows up at the church, and he finds Declan in there burning things, looking like a lunatic. And uh, Declan tries to tackle him and basically tries to kill him. But uh, Ron uh, Ron gets the better of him because there's like fire erupts outside and it distracts him for a moment. And we find out that Rawhead is in town just like Mm -hmm. running down the streets and clawing open cars and lighting the town on fire. Which is very uh, Rawhead. (laughs) Yeah. He's just, and he's, and and what's really cool is he's like, 
he's so just jubilant, I think is the word yeah. used. Like he's so excited he and having so much fun. <laughs> yeah. That's the best part. He's so happy. He's just like, I can finally destroy things again. <laughs> <laughs> so Ron slams a candelabra into, into the altar, intuiting that there's something inside of it. And sure enough, he finds uh, the Venus icon, figurine, whatever you want to call it, the woman that he has to have like a weird moment where this other woman comes in who's bare-breasted for some unknown reason, and he like recognizes that it looks like her, and that's how he puts it together, what it is. But yeah, it's it's a it's it's a icon of femininity, and he realizes it's the weapon, the ultimate weapon against Rawhead. He hopes. And then uh, Rawhead shows up at the church. Yes. And what the detail I love about this is that when he comes out to face Rawhead, he kills Declan almost by accident. And we find out it's because he's blinded himself. And I love that because I think thematically it says a lot too because he essentially is so caught up in his destruction and his joy over it that he is he actually is his own worst enemy. And he hurts himself. He blinds himself by it. Um, like he's out of control, I guess, is what is really shown by that. I love, um, just going like a teeny tiny bit back. Um, there is, there's, there definitely is a moment where Ron is like, oh, this is the thing that's going to kill Rawhead. And he was like, well, actually, I don't know that. And you're like, like, I was like, you know, like you kind of half expect him to be like, this is going to destroy you. And Rawhead's like, no, and just rips him in half, like. It would not be out of place at all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because they keep trying to do all this other stuff and nothing stops him. Right. And there is a really cool moment where even Rawhead says, like, of course, it's just a, a like a, a symbol and it doesn't actually have any power. Yet he chooses to give it power. Right. Yeah. Also, which is, I think, a really cool thing. So too. this is this is basically if we if we go all the way back a while. This is the thing that, like, when they were getting close to it, this was giving them erections and stuff too, right? Like this, this, like, because it was yeah, like covered. Yeah. So, so this is like this, like, ultimate power of, like, I who knows, like, how it has that power, how this specific like idol has that power, but, um, it seems interesting to me that like when he's like breaking into it, he's talking about how like he's he's having weird feelings and isn't aren't they like getting burned or something too when they touch it and like they're they're being hurt like because one of the one of the preacher guys yeah. in the beginning had said like he tried to grab something and it had burned it, it was like he had held out like his yeah. hand was all scabbed yeah. and burned or something goddess worship goes back as one is one of the oldest like pagan if i'm using that term correctly religions and it's very ancient and it does predate christianity by a long time and uh, very early man worshiped go- like goddess figures and that's where these icons are real things that have been found right so Clive Barker is, I think, brilliantly using that idea of this, like, the most ancient religion right. and the power of it. And maybe it's the one true religion, you could say. And and I also like that the figurine is in an altar, and he even mentions, like, they've all been coming to worship, and they've been secretly kind of worshiping this figurine and this goddess, even though they thought they were, be- you know, being good Christians, yeah. which is just like a fuck you to Christians, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um cool just cool stuff i i i don't i mean i i assume he did a lot of research in that and like that's all real things and i don't know i think it's really cool that he used and that. also there's the whole thing about um like old english churches being built on top of old pagan sites because there's not a lot of room yep. in that area so it's like i guess it's more of that he's just threading that into his story yeah sure 
So the story ends with um, Rawhead being mobbed, really, by the people of the town. And they're, like, tearing him apart. But I also love that as they're tearing him apart, he, like, is breaking bones and biting off fingers and, like, oh, killing people. Oh, my God. That's like, one, of my favorite, one of my favorite lines. Oh, my God. I have no... Oh, oh, my God. I found it. He snapped off a finger here. A face there. Like, he's just <laughs> ripping off people's faces. That is not as nonchalant as a finger. Yeah. But then, but like also the mass of humanity doesn't break. Like it, 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 right. it wears him down, tears him apart. Ron smashes the figuring into his skull and his brain. And then we end with Rawhead pissing again <laughs> and his piss like flowing down the road into a drain and going back to the earth, right. which I thought was an interesting detail. I, I, I would love to know what you, what you guys made of that detail it being the final thing we get. I, I guess I kind of made, um, especially thinking of it as, like, masculinity and things like that and him being buried and everything. It's like, don't worry. That's always there. Like, no matter what you do, it's always somewhere down there. Oh, interesting. Like, it's almost a persistence of his nature right, is right. still in the earth. Yeah, right. I like that. Hmm. I like that, too. I feel like it it was maybe, and this is just, like, my initial reaction from it when I when I finish it was like he so he's like this ultimate figure of masculinity and all this stuff and in the end he was like beaten down and and like the like it's like to piss yourself and to like evacuate your bowels and all that stuff is like it's not uh, it's very like you know it's like a vulnerable state to end in and and he's like not no longer that that like ironclad like masculinity force of nature all that stuff and then i thought it was also interesting that the he mentioned like going into the earth is like more of like the fertility and life and femininity like the that it all it all starts there and ends there kind of thing it all oh, like yeah. comes back around to the earth right and earth is a woman yeah yeah and stylistically, I think it's consistent with the rest of the story, too, because it's that detail that we didn't want that we're going to get anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and it's it, and it's also a theme throughout for fear. So it could also show Rawhead's fear in this moment because the horse, I think, like craps it's like as it's being forced into the into the barn. Yeah. yeah. And then um, like the children, I think a couple times like people like piss themselves oh, yeah. right before they die. And so it's like it's that kind of like uh, accidental (laughs) expulsion of whatever. Like that's it's all tied up with fear. And so it's interesting that at the end, maybe Rawhead's the one who is afraid. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because he knows he's not going to come back to. He has this thought of like, I know I'm not going to be resurrected. This is the real death. Yeah. Right. And that was cool, too, because it's not like, oh, no, there's not going to be Rawhead Rex 2 or he's back. Right. This is it. Right. Also, it's just, uh, you know, it's one last, like, fuck you before Rawhead, you know, is totally gone. It's like, I'm just going to piss all over everything one more time. <laughs> <laughs> so this story, I mean, I, I think just final thoughts about it. Um, it's, so, it's so extreme. It's so gross and disturbing. But yeah. to me, like I, like I said it before, like as a jaded adult who feels like I've seen everything, I can't be genuinely surprised and shocked anymore. Maybe I can be surprised, but I can't be shocked, you know? But no, like this story, even though I'd read it before, like it still sh- it continues to shock me. And, and that's a fun, it's like a fun experience to have as a reader. Yeah. 
I mean, I went into the story blind, didn't know what to expect. Um, <laughs> had a lot of things subverted along the way that I thought like certain things and expectations I had subverted along the way. Um, I liked it. I enjoyed it. I really like diving into something that's just like wholeheartedly like knows what it is. And like, I feel like this is that like this is like he knew from the start that this is going to be he's packing everything he can into it. And it's it's not necessarily just shock value, but there's a lot of the, the, the shocking like um, really gruesome, like fun things that happen in this while also having those allegories. So I don't know. All in all, I really right. liked it. And going into this film, I just like I feel like. I was telling Luke, I've heard that the the film isn't isn't all that I guess oh, no. the writer <laughs> wished it wished it would have become. But um, I, it's like it's like I was telling him, I was like, this has got to be a home run, right? You just adapt all of this exactly, <laughs> and then people are gonna love it. <laughs> people would riot in the streets if you <laughs> just copied this and made this movie. <laughs> So I the detail I was saving for the end is that Barker, um, he I guess he worked on or wrote the screenplay that the movie used, yeah. but he was so unhappy with the director and the director's take on it that he has since disowned that movie. Yeah. So it's weird that he was attached to it yet hated the result. Yeah, I think that's funny too because Hellraiser did not really like um that kind of fucked up Clive Barker's career a little bit. Hellraiser really? did. Yeah. And so like after Hellraiser came out, they probably I mean, I'm not totally sure. I'd have to look it up, you know, but I'm betting that they were like, You can write it, but you are not fucking directing it. There's no <laughs> way we're letting you direct it after Hellraiser. Interesting. Yeah, well, we can we should dive more into that in our uh, film episode, which we're going to do next week, and we should go ahead and announce that Courtney is going to return for the film episode, right? Yes. I can't wait to get get into this movie, guys. I don't even know what to expect. It's going to be it's going to be something. I, I think I saw somewhere that it's got like a like a th- like a I don't know, 30% rotten or something on Rotten Tomatoes, like Fine with me, man. So this will be our first movie like that that we've covered. So it'll be interesting to see. Um, I think even if you haven't seen the film, you should check out our episode because I think we're just going to have fun talking about it. Yeah, that's my goal. And we're excited to have you back, Courtney. Yeah, we wanted to thank you for coming on. Um, do you have any projects coming out that you would like to talk about? Um, I You mentioned that I have um, I'm an anthology, so you can pick that up. Um, I am um, set to be releasing a novella in 2019. So, uh, yeah, currently titled Consume. But, you know, you can, like, follow me on Instagram or something, and I'm sure I'll post about it eventually when I get there. Um, What's your handle? Oh, oh gosh. Um, It's Courtney underscore Z underscore H. But uh, my name (laughs) is spelled... K-O-U-R-T-N-E-A. So that's Courtney. Um, Are you on Twitter? No, I don't do Twitter. Oh, you got to get on oh Twitter. Oh my God, I hate <laughs> it. Okay. <laughs> I just got an okay, Instagram. Okay, well, we'll follow you on Instagram ago. then. Yeah, and I'm uh, currently right. working on something with Tom Savini and Tina Romero, which is George Romero's daughter for the George Romero film program. Um, cannot really talk about it, but yeah, post about it on Instagram. Definitely. Awesome. That sounds super so cool. cool. Uh, James is telling me about the uh, about about uh, Tom Savini. Oh yeah, he's uh, a yeah. I, that's it. Sounds really talented cool. man. 
That's really cool. Yeah, we'll <laughs> we'll be sure to follow you on all the social medias, and we'll we'll I'm sure we'll tw- like post and tag you in all of our social media stuff. So if anybody wants to find her, oh, cool. go find her through there, and we'll definitely look yeah. out for that film and the the novella. Sweet. Yeah, and thanks for coming on. We will rejoin next week where we talk about the film. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for coming on, Courtney. Yeah. We will talk to you next week. Looking forward to it. Yeah, thank it's you. It's been a lot of fun. All right, great. Thank you. All right, that was the end of our talk with Courtney. That was Rawhead Rex, the short story. If you wanted to find her on social media, we will be tagging her on Instagram. And we, if you wanted to find us on, on Instagram so that you can find that, we're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Ink to Film. Yeah, and if you'd like to send us feedback, you can always email us at inktofilm at gmail.com or just comment on any of our social media pages. Um, but uh, if you liked this episode and you enjoyed it, uh, the best way to show that to us is to give us a rating and review on whatever uh, platform you use. A review like this one, which comes to us from iTunes by Suze J. Five stars, fantastic podcast. I'm totally digging the Ink to Film podcast. Luke and James do a fantastic job of analyzing the written version as well as the movie version of each work. While it's a comprehensive look at both formats, it's done in an engaging and fun way. I love that they get they include guests from time to time like Mike Arnzen, and that they are always put the quality episodes that give them that give me new insights into the works that I love. You guys rock, keep up the awesome work. So that's a fantastic one. We love to hear stuff like that. Yeah, thank you. Suze J, we also interact with a lot on, on social media. So thank you to her again. Yeah, yeah. Follow her on, on Twitter and everything. Yeah, she's great. All right, lastly, we just wanted to say thank you to Audible for our affiliate link. It's audibletrial.com forward slash ink to film. And with that, you get 30 free days and one free credit for any audiobook in their collection. And also we wanted to thank AK New God for the song Indifferent, which we use for our intro and outro music. We're going to put their links in our uh, in our show notes if you want to find them. And we wanted to thank Courtney one last time. We're going to see her again next week, but it was awesome talking to her. So big shout out. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, make sure to tune in next week. We're going to cover the film Rawhead Rex. It looks like it's going to be a good one. <laughs> Should be a really interesting episode. Uh, we hope you join us. Uh, until then, I'm Luke. And I'm James. See ya. See ya.